Hi, and welcome to this uh, episode of the VFX show, where uh, if you accept it, we will be talking to Jason Diamond. How are you, Jason? Uh, fully accepted and ready to uh, go on the mission. And uh, Matt Wallen, is that you, Matt? Or... That is me. I will self-destruct at the conclusion of this podcast. <laughs> Excellent. So should you or anyone object to our comments, we will, of course, deny that we said them. Uh, and if, it's Mission Impossible. And it's, uh, I don't know, what, the 17th Mission Impossible? Um with uh, with the world's greatest movie star and uh, insurance risk uh, problem, uh, Tom Cruise. <laughs> so, so I joke, but this has been a, a phenomenal franchise and it's generated an enormous amount of stuff. And it is, without a doubt, one of the most interesting franchises from an effects point of view because he walks this line between visual effects, physical effects, actual stunt work and his own um, work in an environment where... They do face swapping in the movie, but not kind of face swapping for the actor. Wow, that's kind of meta. Okay, so let's start with what we thought of the film before we get into the visual effects. Um, so, <clears throat> Jason, lead us off. Did you did you like Mission Impossible Part One of a two part? Um... <laughs> it's like uh, yeah, it's like Rambo first Rambo two first Blood Part three or whatever you know uh, acronyms we can ascribe to it uh, i was entertained it wasn't like it didn't blow me away i think i liked the other two macquarie joints better um macquarie is a much better writer than this movie is uh i think i think i don't know if we all saw it but i know there was a thing going around uh with all the actors during their junkets talking about how the movies get written at this point and they literally said they make up a list of set pieces that of things they want to try with no plot. Just go, oh, we could drive a train off a thing. And, oh, you could drive a motorcycle off a cliff. You could do these things. And then they literally just write dialogue to connect the set pieces. Uh, and I think in the past, it's maybe had a little more cohesiveness to it. In this one, it's just like, like almost worse than Nolan-esque exposition to just have people talk about shit between things that that is obscenely ridiculous and with a pathos that is so over the top. And my biggest problem with it is that the audience has been shown the answers to every conversation in the opening gambit. My argument is that you would that opening gambit should have been obscured. So we didn't know that AI was on the ship. Spoiler alert on the sub and we saw the keys work. Like we saw everything. And then we have to watch these smartest people in the room on screen who are supposed to solve all the world's problem, not know shit. And the audience is shoving popcorn in their mouth being like, it's just a key for a lock at this in a sub at the bottom of the Arctic ocean. And like they dole it out throughout the movie with this pathos that is insane. Uh, that being said, because of course you end first, the first, the first uh, this first episode, sh like with this like snaking jaws shot through the Arctic Ocean, like where where are they going? Like the audience is like, we're going to see the sub that's been crashed. We know it's there. What are you showing this to us for? It's insane. Beyond that, like, <clears throat> set okay. pieces. No, I'm just saying the set pieces I felt overall were good. Uh, they they had a. And, and I think the thing that really works for them in these cases is, that, is the physicality that they, now obviously there's tons of visual effects, but they, they have a very 
or it seems marketed that they have a very base layer of significant practical plates and action that they build upon for a lot of these things uh, that was impressive. And we can get into them as we talk through it. I, I particularly like the little yellow Fiat car chase, um, which had a lot of humor and a lot of like almost poking jokes at themselves about all the previous car chases, uh, as well as I think solving the problems of that we called out in Indy five in, or six or whatever it was in the Tuk Tuk chase, which felt very um, on a stage LED wall, maybe kind of stuff. And this felt like, no, it's they're there for a significant amount of shots. At least it feels like, which is more, most important how, how they did it. We can discuss, but it felt real and it didn't feel overly visual effects. Um, so that's, that's my, uh, two cents. And Matt, did you enjoy it? Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's fun, like, but it, it's sort of like, uh, I went with my wife and my son and we all went and saw mm-hmm. Mission Impossible. And, and, um, the thing I was thinking about, uh, when we left the theater was, um, like, you know, the, the sort of joke, right. There's this kind of euphemistic joke about like, uh, take out, uh, Chinese food, right. That like you eat it <laughs> and then like just a, you know, a, an hour later you're hungry again. <clears throat> And mm-hmm. I kind of feel like this is the movie, summer movie equivalent of like takeout Chinese food in that, like, you know, <laughs> I watched it and while I was watching it, I was like, oh, this is fun. You know, like there's a fun action mm-hmm. and, you know, I'm not like a super big action movie person, but like, you know, this was fun. It was fun action, like uh, lots of neat staging and sequences and, um, you know, some fun uh, charismatic screen presences uh, to watch. Um but, you know, as soon as we were leaving the theater, I, we were talking about it driving home and, you know, we all kind of agreed like, yeah, that was fun. Like those, they do action pretty good, those movies, but I won't remember much about it uh, in a week. Like, mm-hmm. I just won't even really think much about it. Like <laughs> there's not anything that there, there's no sustenance, you know, that comes with it, which maybe there should, I shouldn't expect there to be with a Mission Impossible movie, but um you know, for just sheer action and spectacle. Um, I think it was a lot of fun. I think most of the effects in it were pretty, were pretty, were pretty fun as well. Uh, and I do mm-hmm. think, yeah, it's a great combination of um, visual effects work uh, combined with, um, yeah, real practical, practical effects, practical um, stunt work and stuff. So, I mean, it's just a fun spectacle. In, in one of the earlier Mission Impossibles, the one, um, where he climbs the outside of the um, Dubai Tower. Mm-hmm. In that one, they had this sort of idea that this time the tech isn't going to work, which introduced a level of peril because, like, normally the tech works perfectly and everything works perfectly. And so, you know, even the gloves on the ridiculous climb on the outside of the building, and suddenly <laughs> one of them doesn't work, and you're like, oh, my God. In, in the a two, like, I think the third one, they had the peril where he was going to have to choose between you know, two uh, people in his lives and and you felt, well, okay, Ethan probably won't die, but like will his wife slash girlfriend would ever die? And in this one, I don't think we had a really significant peril that we felt like we cared about enough or an interesting device that um, 
that questioned the premise of the formula that is Mission Impossible. So it's one thing to, you know, you can have somebody threatened, you know, are they going to die or not? If you had a child and was the child going to die, you'd be like, no, the child's not going to die because they're not going to kill a baby. But if it's a partner, yeah, maybe they're going to die and, and I'm worried about that. Or if you, you know, play with our perceptions of Mission Impossible and what it is, as I said, with the one where the gears didn't work, then that's also really interesting. But you do need that kind of a hook. Um, especially when the marketing of the film is predicated on showing you the jaw-dropping thing that is the jaw-dropping thing in the movie. Um, and of course, it only works in the movie because you've seen the thing in advance about the fact that it's done for real. So mm -hmm. if you hadn't seen that and they held that back, then you'd see it and assume it was just, oh yeah, he jumps off the cliff and you'd assume it would be a, um, a stunt person or done CG and you wouldn't be in awe of it. So what they've done now is they've subverted the film to be, hey, we're going to do this for real, and this is what it looks like, and isn't it remarkable? But of course, then when you go to the cinema, in a sense, it's still good, but it's a bit of an anticlimax because I mm -hmm. kind of have seen the shot already. Um, yep. And that's the main selling point for going to the movie now, which is like, well, yeah, it looked exactly like it did in the making of and in the trailer and in the pre-trailer and in the publicity. So I don't know, it's like a weird thing that they're doing. They're, instead of subverting it in a way that makes me engage more with the material in the cinema, they're kind of subverting it in a way that makes it like, okay, so he's going to jump off this for real. And if you want to see that in the context of a movie, you should go to the box office. Yeah, I mean, I, I when the, when that sh those two the two big shots they had pushed, which was the train going off the rat off and you know the thing and the motorcycle shot, like the motorcycle shot is so fast, it's like four shots. Like by you know you have a big wide, he jumps, they cut down, he's flying, the motorcycle goes away, done. And the the hype videos that you're talking about, Mike, are like seven minutes long, eight minutes long. Like they build up all the 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 tension and the pressure and you see the Simon Pegg you know on BTS being like oh so my god that. Uh. that that's what I was going to say it's watching Simon Pegg look as an actor not sorry not as an actor but as a human looking concerned yeah. about his friend Tom Cruise doing the stunt mm -hmm. and just saying oh my god they this every bloody time it kills me like that moment of humanity made the making of kind of more significant to yeah. me than in the movie where. I, I knew he was going to pull it off, but also there was no one expressing any concern that he wasn't because, yeah, you know, that didn't sit in the plot. Yeah, no, I agree. That making up with Simon Pegg, that was a quite a, you know, for a moment I was like, yeah, if I was standing there and I knew Tom Cruise, I would be like, good Lord, we, we'd keep well, doing and this. And I would say too, you know, from, from a visual effects standpoint, the promotional um sort of be behind the scenes thing of where we see the ramp and we see the jump mm -hmm. like be having seen that because it's such a big deal right they were really pushing that kind of prior to the film's release now i know this film this release was postponed for a really long time as well because of the pandemic i believe right and maybe other yep. uh, other related issues and i think that that uh maybe was part of the, maybe there were other concerns that were sort of about wanting to really juice this and try to gas it some so they could make back some of the money that I'm sure uh, they lost during that. Um, but I don't think that's the only reason that they did it because they did that for him on the side of the jet. You know, the one where he's right. on the side yeah. of the plane. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And that was all like. And the Burj. Have... Yeah. Yeah. yeah but the Burj Khalifa too. Plane, I remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I get what I was going to say about the motorcycle thing, though, is that the behind the scenes thing, you see the ramp and all this. And so then when you see the shot in the context of the film, you can't, I mean, at least as an effects person, you can't help but be hyper conscious of the fact that like, oh, yeah. like this is where they've replaced the ramp. There's conveniently the edge of the cliff that looks just like a ramp <laughs> for a jump, right? But it's now rocks. Yeah. And then when the motorcycle is speeding along what is, you know, pretty rough terrain, the wheels and the shocks on the motorcycle are perfectly still because mm-hmm. he's on a ramp, right? So like there, the there's no like bouncing of the shock absorbers. And I thought that was actually the w- one thing when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's a missed effects opportunity there to like give it a, some more realism. And they didn't do anything like that, which would have no, been- I was gonna say the exactly the same thing. And, and not only was it the shocks, which is a terrific point, but if you looked at the top wide shot, the path that he was gonna drive on all the rocks there just happened to be smooth, right? Yeah. yeah. So it wasn't like they were rough and the shocks didn't react to it. It was it was digitally created that cliff face, uh, the cliff ramp to be smooth rocks going up to the jump point. Um, yeah. And I was thinking, well, that again, how like all these other rocks are really craggy and kind of busted up and you know rough, and then this just has a line of smooth rocks. So yeah. I mean, I would, I would argue uh, to add drama to the shot and really stretch it out. I would want a guy like off at a three quarter shooting him on a 50 to 1000 and really Tony Scott, that shit, right. You know, right in a medium with a super long lens and just see its face like, ah, as he goes off. I mean, there's gotta be moments in there for it, for the edit to really make it like feel it. And they live on that wide so much that high wide, because they really want you to feel thing but again to both of your points we've already seen that high wide in the in the b-roll mm-hmm. in the bts stuff so it's sort of like give me shots i haven't seen if you're going to jazz it up like really ex- stretch out the drama of the scene because i know he's going to make it you showed me he's going to make it there's not even a chance of peril like he goes off the end and there's a and there's like the shoot doesn't open and there's like a moment of struggle post jump like none of it so, and this is what I was saying before about the dialogue is if you're going to give up the set pieces, then the dialogue has to be really strong and the characters have to be stronger to uphold the beats that you're normally saving for the theater that you're giving up early for marketing. They, they made a huge deal about how they, you know, working out what that shot would look like, right? So, to, so they did a lot of work in working out how to film it. But I think you're right. The shot that they missed was a 300 mil that was not quite able to frame it properly because everything yeah. was framed perfectly. And like one of the hunt and seek of like, mm-hmm. you know, the cinematographer doesn't even know where Tom is going with this and or yeah. Ethan Hunt. And so we're just trying to find that. Um, and that sort of uh, Battlestar yeah. Galactica kind of vibe. So Tony Scott straight yeah, up. Would have just like- uh, really made it, had it more energy. But that's that. So we're into the visual effects, of course, but there's also this whole problem that I had, which is, is the most plausible way to get on the train to cause him to climb a mountain to then right. jump off to parachute <laughs> in? It was like, that seems a little extreme. Like, uh, you know, it was, and also climbing a mountain, even on a motorbike, is going to take a really long amount of time. And he just missed mm-hmm. the train. <laughs> and now he's got time to go zigzagging up a mountain, stop, think about it for a bit. 
see the train coming. And then, I mean, he would have had to have been accelerating much, much faster than the train away from the train <laughs> to get enough time to get up that mountain to then have time mm -hmm. to pause and for the time to actually parachute down. Um, yeah. So I was and like, find it, the, and find the trajectory on the way down to yeah. catch the train. And so, yeah. And then the same sort of thing happens, I think, a little bit. Like, I think the train sequence is a really effective piece of cinema after it's gone off the um, mm -hmm. off the, the cliff and they're in the yeah. hanging carriage and they're trying yeah. Yeah. to negotiate not dying mm -hmm. in the carriage as it kind of slowly. That's totally effective agree. cinema. The yeah. train going off the actual cliff, I know that they threw an actual train off an actual sort of cliff, but it wasn't that cliff and it wasn't that crash, like the place where it landed wasn't, you know, it was obviously digitally enhanced and stuff. And so I was like, mm-hmm, yep. Like I, I just guess having a locomotive going off a into a ravine, you know, I was thinking back to the future part three. Like I was like, okay, <laughs> but- but then the cinema was more interesting to me when they had the human aspect of them trying to mm -hmm. deal with a carriage that was slowly inching forward and dropping more and them kind of in a vertical carriage not being killed by grand pianos and stuff. Like that was good. That was a really a great cinema. set piece. Yeah. And it yeah. had like, it had this weird kind of clock-like tension with the sort of yeah. mm -hmm. each sort of movement of the train yeah. cars uh passing down and the standing like you know having being able to stand vertically in you know something that's mm -hmm. you know essentially it's no longer horizontal right so they're standing it's on a, something and jumping yeah. across and you know yeah. those moments were really uh and the yeah, zero gravity super thing fun cinema threw them up and they were the whole yeah. carriage was in yeah, but yeah here's the thing was that better for us as audience members? Because we hadn't had a full breakdown of how they did the, yeah. as you say, clock ticking, jumping across the thing, mm -hmm. because I didn't know what was going to happen. And I was, and it was a, it was a problem to be solved. And I enjoyed watching them solve the problem. I didn't yeah. expect Ethan to die, but <clears throat> I like it when writers produce a complex problem and then they produce a plausible way for their heroes to navigate mm -hmm. the problem. And, um, yeah. and so that's what you kind of want, really. You don't want them to just pull out a button from uh, a, a gadget from a button that turns yeah. into a, you know, hover pack that turns into a whatever, because then, okay, well, that was just silly. But yeah, that's literally just a physics thing. Yeah. yeah. And that train yeah, sequence, so I, think that I felt like was, it was straight out of, you know, an Indiana Jones movie. It's like the yeah. kind of thing mm -hmm. that could have made the uh the dial of destiny more exciting you know a sequence yeah. like that although it would be hard to imagine the you know 80 year old the octogenarian uh well they wouldn't have been at that point because in in that sequence yeah, he, he was, was young younger, he was younger okay yeah because yeah. that was uh, and i do say that they did a much better job in this film with the fight on top of the train than i believe yeah, they did in agreed. indiana jones that well and again plausible. in the in the a lot of the bts stuff there was or even on the internet, there were people who were like, you know, in Austria or whatever, like looked out my window and saw this and you literally see them on top of the train. Like they filmed, you know, portions again, obviously with visual effects and other things to add peril, but they did film the look, a lot of the location plates standing on top of a train while it was moving X miles an hour. So there, there is, I do, I do like that they have gone to some length to create some physical plates that are more than just you're like, hey, we're in the back lot and we're, you know, like shaking a car or something. 
I would say, Matt, to your thing about the train in its different, you know, oriented states creating different things, it always reminds me of the Poseidon adventure. Oh yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> way way back when the <laughs> boat's yeah, upside you know, down. But it's it's actually really kind of fascinating that we have two movies back to back that we're talking about that have mm -hmm. very similar uh sequences, at least in you know, the train top sequences in terms of the action, two. in terms of shot design, right? I mean, they're they're extremely similar and have yielded uh, very different results. And I think the well, can I add another make... one into that mix, which is hmm. Citadel. Citadel has a train fight on a train, train high speed goes off the tracks. That's the first episode of Citadel on TV at the moment, right? Um, Haven't seen and it. yeah, but it's like they're not fighting on top of the train; they're fighting in the train, and then the train high speed train goes off uh, with an explosion and and crashes. And in that case, they did like fifteen kilometers of CG environment in the whole thing blue screen. So wow. just three completely different approaches to how. Mm -hmm. um, how so they, you've uh, seen all three, Mike. Do you do you? Yeah. How would you weigh in on like the the successes or misses of the various? There was no doubt that I thought it was the most visceral in Mission Impossible, because for our criticism of the, you know, sort of lack of engagement with the plot due to knowing what's going on. There's no doubt that they do the action sequences extremely well. I don't think anyone mm -hmm. does them better right now. Um, and whether the, the only thing that's gotten close to the visceral impact that I think, and it's not a train sequence of, um, of Mission Impossible, is uh, the stuff that we've seen. Um, well, it, it's kind of that whole trend of making James Bond be less... Um, uh, suave and sophisticated and gritty, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I guess Matt Damon led that charge. And and in that shot where Matt Damon's character is meant to jump from one building to another through a window and the camera kind of followed him, that sort follows, of defined yeah. that era. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so, but I think leaving aside that franchise, which hasn't done anything recently, the Mission Impossible guys are doing like the best job at uh, really good action segments. So the problem is, as an audience member, I really agree with Matt that I want something more out of my story than just a sequence of um, of related action pieces, which was my huge criticism of Bond pre this gritty stage, which was, oh, we're now having a car chase. Okay, well, whenever we're finished with that, we'll get back to the story again, right? When we're finished with that, we'll get back to the story. And here I have this inherent problem that I don't actually buy into this whole AI um, evil genius thing. Not at all. Yeah. Threat. I, I think when you get a really good baddie in a movie that you believe, um, uh, what was it? Is it, uh, Philip Michael, uh, you know, what's his name? The guy Seymour that, Hoffman. So, yeah, exactly. He was just terrifying in MIH, whichever MI that was. Three. In three. three yeah. yeah. Like he was just a really like, you just thought this guy is a serious concern. And in Skyfall, you know, that, um, you know, mummy is not done you, looked after you well kind of evil villain. <clears throat> mm -hmm. You really thought this guy is hurt and damaged and I'm just not sure where they're going with this. And so then having an evil AI, I have many issues with it being an evil AI, full stop. But the emotional problem with the evil AI is that you don't think it has any emotion. So 
It's just an algorithm. Well, so well, an algorithm they, is like. Well, and also they tried to they tried to use to bring Isai Morales back as the uh, Gabriel as the like okay he's the legacy bad guy for Ethan. Ooh, there's a human, and oh, we also have the White Widow, and oh, we also have these people that you've seen before that pose threats to him. Maybe not the full existential bad guy threat, but you know they're un unknowable. You know. Uh, they don't, we don't know where they fall. But the problem is, to your point, Mike, is they intimated that the AI is somehow control, giving the people it's controlling no choice because it's already predicted the outcome. So it's like, don't even bother to try because I know as an AI, this is going to happen. And this is like predictive future, uh, which isn't actually a thing. In well, it's like, like, it's it, like it, the, it was, it's the devs concept, right? The TV show. Yeah. Devs. But it wasn't about time travel and other like branched narratives. It was literally like, I've run the numbers and by percentages, this person's going to die or that person's going to die because of these things, which are, uh, it's the same problem as in the opening, like boardroom scene with, uh, with the, all the guys before Ethan comes in with the green smoke when they're literally just talking endlessly about nonsense and they are like, you know, the AI has infiltrated every bank, every major government, every, this, every, that, Oh, 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 build it up. But it hasn't done anything, but it could. And it's basically telling us that it can do whatever it wants. And you're like, I don't give two shits about this, this threat in any way. Well, two things. I mean, one thing in particular about the AI that I, that I did like, uh, as the as the villain or as the MacGuffin or whatever within the context mm -hmm. of the story is, I did like the um, the design and the um, plot thing of this key that's in two pieces yeah. and like and when they they the interlocking nature of the key when it's put together and the lights on and stuff, it's a neat object, right? It feels like a bizarre techie thing, but it feels like some kind of like you know, Eastern European tech. Well, it's like a it's cross, sort of, you know, it has, yeah. yeah. And it, yeah, it has this kind of religious object, but the idea of AI <laughs> as the enemy, you know, I think we're about to see a couple different big movies, including this one come out that have this, uh, also the creator too, but it made me think too, uh, watching it, like how timely it was too. Like I was going to say, Mike, you just did a really cool, um, talk on uh, the business podcast with Kim Masters about the uh, the writer strike and talking about like a response kind of to the AI. I don't know if you wanted to say anything about that, but I thought that was a really intelligent conversation and a voice that like hadn't really been heard in that debate yet. Well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of points there, like to unpack. Firstly, I think it's no surprise that people in the industry and in the general population in particular are concerned about AI because we only make dystopian future movies with evil AIs. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and we never make utopian movies about, you know, how marvelous AI is going to make things. So people have just been trained for years to fear AI. Um, but the second point is... And this film's going to suffer from it as well, which is AI isn't one thing. It's just a tool. It's a bunch of things. And um, so this in this film, the problem they're going to have with the next iteration of it is something they set up in this one, which is the only way to stop it was to get to the source code of the original one. But like, this makes no sense, right? Like if you've got something that is 
um, you know, think about it. You've got a version of Photoshop on all your different computers and you get to the source code at Adobe for original Photoshop. Doesn't change anything about all the other versions of Photoshop that are sitting out there. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's like, okay, you changed and done a new version. All right, whatever. Um, so this idea that if you could only change the source code of the original one, that it would somehow solve all problems. I mean, how that isn't going to be the most absurd plot device in the in the next film, I don't know. Um, but of course, if you set up an omnipotent everything, then you have to have a way of bringing down the omnipotent everything. And so their absurd solution is that there is this one central controlling AI that you could hack the code of. And my point on the business is this just continues this myth that AI is a thing. And so people uh, are very worried about AI because we've set up a dystopian future. They're now saying, oh, okay, the writer's strike and particularly the director's guild strike is about AI. Though that is only SAG. a very small part, SAG, yeah, uh, sorry, SAG and Directors Guild of, of America, right? Uh, they're only worried about AI is not the central or the only major point that they're worried about. And some commentators have actually said, well, literally said, and in fact, an earlier one on the business, well, you know what? I tried explaining about the writer's room or I tried explaining about residuals or I tried explaining about any of these things and no one cares. But if I say we're worried about AI, then everybody gets it and we have a lot of support. So that's what I'm going to say. And my thing was, it's really doing a disservice because we already use, as listeners to this podcast would know, like tons of AI, not least of which as like denoising and uh, finishing renders in a, in sure. a modern uh, ray tracer, right? So there's uh, heaps of stuff that we use and we use it in everyday life from just, you know, things to do with Amazon, things to do with Google Maps, things to do with uh, Siri and to do with Alexa, there's just a lot of use of machine learning out there. But if we um, claim that AI is going to destroy everything and blow everything up, then we also stand the chance of hurting a lot of industry professionals in our industry that would otherwise use these tools. Um, I don't know if I did this on the podcast, but a friend of mine's um, doing a book and we were helping out with making a promo just to you know say that the book's coming out. and um, their publisher just said, oh, we can't use any AI to make the promo. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, no, this, the whole publisher has put a ban on using any form of AI, presumably to be nice to their own writing sort of, um, you know, contributing editor, uh, contributing writers. But like, that's really odd because they're just basically stopping the use of technology in a blanket reaction to the notion that um, things aren't done. Now, I am literally a card-carrying member of a union. I have no problem with many of the points that, are, in fact, most of the points have been brought up by both of those two unions. And furthermore, even on the AI points, I have no problem with people having their rights protected, being rewarded as artists if their material is used. Um, but there's a midpoint between the extreme ban all and everything super rosy. And that's a nuanced place I think we need to live where we say, okay, yeah, it's true. It's a good idea that artists' work is uh, covered. In the case of the writers, it's a really good idea that AI shouldn't be able to be credited as the first draft of something. So you only pay less money to a writer who then polishes the script and thus you've found a way around of just reducing the writer's fees. Like all of those things I completely agree with. Um, but, you know, like we can't right now, I couldn't take your likeness, Jason, and use it to you know, promote a product. I mean, forget AI. I just couldn't do it with 
anything. I couldn't do it in writing. Yeah. I couldn't do it in the Photoshop because, you know, those are rights that you have. And Matt, if you like um, chose to write uh, into a contract with me that I give up all rights to my likeness and all use of my likeness to you, Surprise. then you actually have the right <laughs> to use my likeness. That's what the contract, and so writers shouldn't, or sorry, uh, actors shouldn't agree to such a contract. Like I agree with these things wholeheartedly, but um, but I also agree with the fact that uh, just pretending like there's a single existential threat to humanity and to the job market in particular, somebody said to me, first uh, Blade Runner, 350 artists worked on it. Yeah, Blade Runner, 49, what it was, uh, 2049, 3,000 artists worked on it. Like at the moment, we have really low unemployment in my country and in yours. And we've had computerization for 40 years. Right? We've seen mm -hmm. it run through editing. We've seen it run through cinematography. We've seen it like hit production design and like how they sets are made. Like James Bond cars have been 3D printed. Like they're 3D printed in Aston Martin. And we haven't seen a complete collapse of jobs. So this sort of like, oh, we're well, you all going to lose You made a great point AI. too, though, you're talking about in, in that uh, conversation, you made a great point about the project that you had worked on with a couple companies in Los Angeles. I forget the name of it now, Ben, but- uh, the, Pin screen and adapt, yeah. Yeah, and you mentioned those, that the the lip sync, the, the using the machine learning AI tools to assist in uh, creating the lip sync, you were able to bring back you know, the ones who were available and wanted to participate, the actual actors uh, to, you know, redo their dialogue and get everything so that you could have uh, essentially a, a dub, but that looked like it was shot in that language, which increased the reach of the movie to a much broader audience and created more job opportunities for and employed more people in the end, you know? So it's yeah, kind it of ironic. Lose any jobs to anyone. And we've done that now with a Polish and a German film. We've done it with a, a Spanish film and we've done it with a French film. And we're now on a, uh, another huge project. And yeah, all it means is more people have jobs. No one lost their jobs in dubbing. No one lost their jobs on set. No actor had their likeness used without their permission. No actor was, you know, failed to be consulted or in any way was um, left out of the conversation. And the writers themselves had a more faithful translation of the script because somebody wasn't trying to totally. hack the script to come up with anything that kind of fitted the lip movements that we saw in the, the mouth in movement, the Spanish yeah. version. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but in fact, point. a better translation of whatever the writer had gone to all the trouble to come up with for the nuanced, intelligent writing that they'd done in the bloody first place. Um, yeah. And and net result is the audience just benefits from another option for watching a film. You can still watch it in you know, French or in Spanish and with subtitles because the hearing impaired community absolutely needs that. No question. Well, but just on this, on, this, on this note, though, I think it's also important just to mention because i know that it's being talked about and i know that we've all we've been involved in this, these conversations individually and i many of our friends in the business are talking about right now in in visual effects how there's so much work being done in visual effects which is not a union uh or mm -hmm. a guild represented uh part of the motion picture industry uh and many visual effects artists who generate amazing work that goes on to 
generate massive amounts of box office return for those and people Oscars. who are yeah and Oscars and 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 those people who are in those guilds and and unions benefit greatly from the increased ticket sales uh, that come in part because of the contribution of visual effects and many visual effects artists are not being and have always not been uh frankly for a host of reasons that don't always get credited for the films they work on which can have an impact on their ability to continue to get work and also uh there is this current trend uh that's out there and we've seen it you know recently where filmmakers studios uh marketing uh, teams will talk about how there's no CGI in this, or, mm -hmm. you know, everything was done practically, you know, as if somehow, uh, that makes the movie better, more authentic. I, I'm not yeah, sure. It makes no sense. But yeah. there's this kind of strange well, popular me, backlash not... against the visual, the idea it's of visual effects. They, they the use the word practically. They, they say it was done for real. And I'm like, none right. of it was done yeah. for real. Like it's, yeah, they're, yeah. Not it's really movies. Movie. they're not yeah. really killing people, <laughs> you know, so we killed real is, people. There's a hundred yeah. murders. But also it's incredibly offensive. It's incredibly offensive to the in, just really skilled artists and uh, yeah, I say, uh, sort of TDs and people that are developing these really smart algorithms and uh, tools to imply that somehow their work is inferior or that it's just kind of boffany techie stuff, but not real filmmaking. And I'm like, I just don't know how offensive that is. Or it could be more offensive because let's think about like that. Go back to film. Forget visual effects for a second. Forget um, all the stuff to do with uh, digital AI that I've been referring to. Did you have a more boffany bunch of technicians than the chemists that were coming up with color film that were working out emulsion layers and chemicals so that you could get really good... And then did you have yeah. cleverer people that were working out how to use optical, um, uh, you know, compositing and, and mechanical forms of holdout exactly. mats and stuff like these are all highly inventive, but very technical uh, people that contributed enormously to the culture, full stop, yet alone just filmmaking. And now to imply that the current generation of artists and technicians that are delivering at like the top of their game, some of the most inventive and clever and innovative work are yeah. inferior filmmakers. It's just so offensive. Anyway, that's yeah, just, I don't understand I, I, the the. My blood I mean, it's a it's a side it, note, but I don't I don't really understand yeah. the the reason for the or the 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 feeling that it, the compulsion. The what is the ethos? Yeah. What, why why are people why are certain filmmakers at the present moment compelled to want to say these things like what why? or or the like, public the public then the public then picks it up and runs with it like I see you know Oren Soffer yeah. has been doing some really good work on IG just on Instagram rather talking about you know pointing these things out and it's like the he shared a shot the other day about um a thing from an article then the cover of the article was a shot of Barbie. Right. And it was like, it's literally people sitting in a car doing a thing and there's oh, a blue screen, blue screen behind yeah. them. And it says the article title was like how Barbie did everything practically and, you know, barely used any or didn't use any visual effects to accomplish it. You're like, oh my God, have you, I haven't yeah. even seen it, but the trailer, like you couldn't do that practically. Like, it's like, let's just be logical here. Nobody, and I don't believe Greta Gerwig or anyone has, you know, no one from the film I've, I've read has 
has said anything about them not using visual effects or anything. It's just been the public now, just like the public has been trained to value a movie based on box office, which is insane, is the same thing now. Like, oh, they used visual effects. Oh, blah, blah, blah. And like half half the dummies who post those articles don't even know what they're talking about. Well, and yeah, I it's would just, I would it's just, I would it's even just trope argue, they're jumping on. Now, I know that I'm jumping the shark a little bit here. Uh, well, no, that's not the right term. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about something that I will, will have to talk about further on another show. But uh, there is a movie uh, out in theaters right now where the climactic moment or one of the big climactic moments is the detonation of a large explosive device. And I, I'm not going to lie. They they didn't use CGI at all in that movie. And I think it's actually to the movie's detriment in that moment, because I feel like what uh, they they wind up doing is they make something that looks so small. Then uh, it, it would have been such an exciting visual effects opportunity to explore, you know, the state of the art in fluid thermal dynamics simulation to create mm-hmm. something that was a really accurate representation at scale, you know, like that's something that looked really large. And at least what I saw in the theater, uh, it looked tiny. It really looked well, small. Well, and it was we anticlimactic to the moment in the movie. We, we can get into this particulars of that shot, but can I just say this, right? Like, I think that it's absolutely the case that leaving aside this point, we're going to discuss obviously next week when we get yeah, to yeah. Oppenheimer, but when Sorry. when you talk about no no but when you talk about visual effects people will point to i don't know the rock in some movie and say oh look he looked really fake uh, the digital version of him right and and as if the entire visual effects industry and CGI is allowed to make no errors or have no growth right but like there are so many movies where i can say the costume was crap the sure. hair and makeup was yeah. crap. The lighting <laughs> yeah. was crap. Acting was crap. The yeah. Acting was crap, right? <laughs> and that doesn't mean all actors are crap. It just means yeah. that those didn't succeed. And so, yeah, I can point to examples of visual effects that didn't succeed. But I can also say that in very few other crafts, not not saying just us, but in very few other crafts, have we seen such a meteoric change in the expectations yeah. of the audience? And so, what was possible? When you were back at ILM, uh, Matt, which yeah. was, you know, brilliant, totally brilliant. But, you know, now but the audience's expectations and what we're, yeah. what we're possible to do is just completely changed. And so, yeah, Absolutely. if you go back and look at something from, you know, 20 years ago and tell me, well, that doesn't look as good as it should have. I'm like, okay, sure. I'm not arguing the toss. But when I sat in the cinema watching Star Wars or... Uh, you know, and I'm not talking like necessarily the original ones that had lots of practicals, but I mean, just mm-hmm. like, you know, the yeah. stuff from the films, what was notionally what, uh, six, seven and eight or no, whatever the last three, the, the, mm-hmm. the Jar Jar Binks era is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. One, two, three. The, okay. There you go. But, but anyway, my point is, and I look at those computer graphics now and I say, okay, well, you know, we can do better subsurface scattering. We can do a whole lot of better things. But just on a visual effects point of view, it was jaw-dropping when those came out. Mm-hmm. And so society moves forward mm-hmm. and it evolves and changes and people's expectations change. And so it's completely valid that we can do better visual effects now than we could before. But it's not a given that our industry was able to do that. Like we're not asking every other, we're not saying to actors, oh, you need to act like 10 times better than you ever acted uh, in your earlier films. Right. Because, you know. Exactly. Otherwise we would think it to be appalling. 
So I don't know, the expectations placed on visual effects and then the criticism placed on it when you can point to some stuff that's bad as if it represents the entire volume of work, it's just absurd. But the last thing I'd also well, say and- is... So I just want to yeah, finish this ahead. last point, right? Is that even if yeah, yeah. you point to something and say, hey, that looked, you know, weird, yeah, like as in I didn't believe it, like it's not up to the sole discretion of the visual effects artist for the right. shot design and what's required. And so there were directors saying, yes, I want the character to come off the ejector seat and shoot up and his face just comes right to the camera and we just see him scream before he falls away again. And like, yeah, that would be impossible to do. Thank you. (laughs) That would be impossible to do. And so it's very hard to sell that shot as being plausible and real because everybody knows that, you know, how on earth would you film that, right? It's it's just, it's a gag, yeah? And uh, so you can't- It's like having having as much fun as you can uh, playing in the sandbox Without can without really contextualizing the play that's being done in the sandbox, so that it still lives within the world of of naturalistic kind of realistic yeah. filmmaking, right? But also, you've been but, trying but, to say something, isn't but it? that's called indie filmmaking, right? Like naturalistic slice of life movies without visual effects are what a lot of moviegoers consider uh, boring or not exciting because they want they only like superhero movies, they don't like art house movies, art house movies. Maybe now they do because art house movies now, like you take A24, let's be built a big brand. They're art house to a to an extent. They have lots of visual effects and other things. But the I, I'm just saying in what we're talking about, you can't say, oh, we did everything practically, because if you did, then you couldn't do the things you're claiming to have done. It's a right. it's a cognitive dissonance. But to your point about the Oppenheimer thing, which we'll talk about next week. <laughs> That same filmmaker, pre, you know, made Interstellar that is only visual effects, really, in a lot of senses, to make that movie possible, including the only, the whole world agrees, as on par with design by Kip Thorne, the r- r- most accurate version of a black hole that everyone uses now. Yeah. Like globally is the most recognized thing. It's clearly not real. Yeah, this that same argument about the black hole in Interstellar is sort of what I'm saying about the the yeah. atomic explosion in uh, mm-hmm. Oppenheimer. I think it's a huge missed opportunity to have decided yeah. to go this other route, which you know it's it's cool. It's cool to think about doing something like making a large explosion, but it does it just looks like a big gas fireball explosion from an episode of like, you know, TJ Hooker or something, you know? <laughs> well, like, I mean, I, think it, I haven't it seen lacks, it yet, but well, well, okay. Well, you, I mean, you can decide for yourself, but it's one of those things where I think it could have been, um, yeah, it could have been along the lines of an, of something like what you're describing from Interstellar. But that's what I was going to, that's what I was going to say though, is like, shoot the practical thing, shoot some ground plates and some other things like, uh, like Hurt Locker, you know, like things like that. And then use, like we're talking about here in Mission Impossible, use visual effects appropriately to convey the story beat, which is, I think, all we ever mean in any of the of these yeah. podcasts that we do is use the visual effects to to tell the story beat. Sometimes that's a ridiculous image, and sometimes it's a subtle image. By ridiculous, I just mean like it's an over-the-top like CG extravaganza, which I'm all for if it works. Sure, sure. So 
it, I just don't, I think, I mean, there's none of us will agree on this, on this uh, topic that the concept of why there is a backlash against visual effects in the press uh, or in these bullshit articles that get written for clickbait or whatever they are. Like I, yeah. I, there's no way to, there's no way to uh, make them uh, anything but illogical. Yeah, I don't I don't know that it's ever going to make sense like as a thing, like why uh that's the case. I think uh you couldn't have made uh Mission Impossible and you couldn't have told this story uh in the way that they chose to tell it, which was exciting. It was a fun roller coaster ride without visual effects. So, of course. <laughs> what visual effects did we think were really stellar in this film? I think what we were talking about initially to the the train sequence, but the other one that we haven't discussed that I thought was really pretty spectacular was the uh, the sort of pre, I don't know what you call it, like the sort of introductory sequence before the titles yeah. come up, the submarines. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, it's like I always think yeah. back to, um, you know, what I think a lot of effects people will cite as one of the greatest submarine effects films is mm -hmm. all the work that uh, Scott Squires uh, supervised for Hunt for Red October, right? Which is yeah. just dry for wet, where they created some amazing visuals that were really, really, uh, they still hold up if you go back and watch that film today. But this is that same kind of, um, uh, you know, there's not as many shots, but there's some great shots of the submarines and the torpedoes, you know, underwater and coming mm -hmm. back around. And, you know, I thought that that was a really neat sequence and something that was really oh, fun. Oh, the and ice? Yeah, seeing the, the ice. illuminated ice and stuff, you know, it gives you that claustrophobic DOS boat vibe, you know? Totally. Yeah. 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 It was, um, yeah, the haunting image of those dead bodies floating up under the ice was, mm -hmm. uh, was, uh, pretty, uh, insane. Um, I really liked, I, like I said, I pointed out earlier, I really liked the yellow Fiat kind of that whole sequence. I know that wasn't the beginning of that sequence, but they do car chases really well. And I thought in general, in this movie, the addition of Haley Atwell as a person with skills who is not a super soldier level uh, person, like all the other people are at their specialties, gave the scenes the sort of tension that you need. So like the, the I thought was super smart for the, for the, at least when they get in the Fiat is, you know, they, by the time they've gone through half the chase, she puts the she puts the hand or he puts the handcuff on her, and they're on there. It happens that the arms they're cuffed on are opposite oh, than right. they would need to be for the <laughs> European car. So yeah. he has to drive with an opposite hand, or she has to drive, which of course takes out all the skill, quote unquote, of of how he drives. And so he has to shift. He has to tell her what to do. His reactions in the car of like shit coming. And he like hunches his shoulders and, you know, puts his hands up in his face. Like it's selling, it's selling what feels very real. And like I said before, uh, I think we, we, we uh, mirrored the train sequences with this in Indy, but yeah. certainly the tuk tuk chase and this, are very similar in the shots that they're choosing inside, outside, high wides, all those things. And this the, is way more successful. The Fiat chase, I think it reminded me more than of the Indiana Jones one of the Born Identity, the first Born movie. Yes. And mm -hmm. the the car chase in the, I think it was a, a mini. an old Mini Cooper, right? And, um, yeah, and he's like, and, uh, 
yeah, and he somehow starts driving it, you know, like it's her car, right? He's kind of thrashing it, going up and down stairs. And, but I think that, you know, it has that same level of frenetic action and chaos. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, but with the added thing that you're talking about, Jason, of the handcuffs and the, that she's like, kind of this thief, kind of Houdini esque thief who's got all this kind of, I thought Haley Atwell was, I thought Haley Atwell was really, really good in this. I totally agree with you. But, the other thing that actually kind of works in their favor is apparently, because I saw a, another making of, there's a bunch of bits in there where she's just spontaneously saying stuff because as a person, she's reacting to the physical <laughs> presence of being in the stunts. Like at one point, she smashes through a bunch of stuff in the car and she just goes, sorry. And it was like not in the script. Right? It was just like she was, yeah. it was all meant to be there, of course. But she was just like, and she even does that apparently in the train that we were talking about earlier where, you know, she's meant to jump over one side and he says, do you trust me? And she initially shakes her head before she nods mm-hmm. and she wasn't meant to shake her head. It was just her natural reaction. No, no, <laughs> I don't want to do Oh, okay. Yeah, no, yes, of course. Yes, I am going to do this. And um, yeah. so I guess that's just really good acting in the sense that she's completely immersed herself in the part that she's so mm-hmm. in the moment that you're getting spontaneously yeah, yeah. Uh, truthful performances, which of course is why it's good to have a actually there for some of it or a lot of it um and yes and i also understand they got in a lot of trouble for those donuts that they were doing with the smoke coming up in that i think they had permission for like (laughs) it's sort of a couple and they just kept on going uh until they were kind of thrown out of rome but notwithstanding them uh pushing the boundaries of uh of what you're allowed to get a um permission or a permit for in in rome uh it had a great energy that sequence and of course you don't want to I don't want to have any kind of, um, I can put this. See, when I'm watching a film like that, I don't want to think that I'm gawking at the potential of killing people. So mm-hmm. I do want them to do it for real. But if it gets to the point that you told me that they killed three stunt people to get this sequence, then it's just ghoulish yeah. to watch the sequence. Yeah, exactly. So I don't want to see actors. I don't want, if they killed Hayley Atwell in a, an attempt to do a stunt for real, it would be appalling. Um, just, you know, incredibly upsetting. Uh, so you kind of want them in a film that's just making money out of people risking to still be safe. And uh, no, of course. And so that's why I did like the tone of that. It was fun and it was dangerous, but it didn't feel like how dare you kind of do what was irresponsible. Um, and let's face it, there have been films, not least of which uh, the uh, Twilight uh, film, where people have been killed in the making of, you know, a major motion picture. So that just completely changes the complexion of the, hey, we did it for real thing when you, yeah, mm-hmm. you actually actually hurt somebody. Um, and I feel like that was a little bit with Tom Cruise in the last one where he broke his ankle. And I was yeah, like, right, yeah. we don't really need actors to feel that they, there must be a certain amount of pressure on other actors. If you're on a show where your lead mega movie star is willing to risk major <laughs> injury, to do your own stunts as well. But um, Matt Damon tells a funny story on um, on uh, one of the, uh, I think it's the Actors on Actors, but it, one of those things that the Hollywood Reporter does, where he was talking to Tom Cruise about um, doing stunts. And he's like, how did you do that thing around the thing in Dubai where you're running on the outside of the building? And, he, and Tom Cruise apparently said to him, um, secondhand, but apparently he said, well, I've always had that shot in mind since, you know, I always wanted to do that shot. And so I spoke to the safety people and they said, you can't do it. It's not safe. 
So I got new safety people. <laughs> and Matt Damon goes, Yeah, I'm sorry. If the safety person says I can't do it, I'm not going to do it. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll take their word for it and just leave it. I want to yeah. try and find someone who will uh, let me do the thing that the other guy thought was too dangerous, too dangerous and not a good yeah. idea. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think this conversation would change on a, on a dime if we were talking after Tom Cruise had been killed doing a jumping off. A well, of course. Bike, yeah. You know, so. But if you can do it safely and if VFX can do rig removal and other things to make it, you know, safe and add, put the odd person in that's jumping in front of a car that isn't real so that they don't have an actual actor or a stunt person, you know, risking their life, then, yeah, I mean, the plane, great. The plane sequence is the perfect example. Like that is, that is tons of, tons of rigging and all those things. Although I think, and I think we discussed this when we did that show is, there is a sequence there. Uh, there's a BTS of Chris McQuarrie in the plane while they're shooting it. He's got a monitor and he's watching it. And he goes, as they're taking off, he goes, wow, this looks amazing. And then he turns to somebody and he goes, you know, it's not until this very minute that I realized if a bird hits Tom, he's dead. Yeah. Right. Like they thought about the safety of him clinging to the thing, but none of the other potentials not. I mean, I'm just speculating based on his comment. Obviously, they did. Uh, uh, I'm sure they did a ton of risk safety analysis. work. Yeah. But yeah, risk analysis. But, you know, it's you can't think of everything. You know, you would need AI for that. Uh, mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, it, it's. But there's also, I think, in that same one where he uh, I think uh, Rebecca Ferguson says that when he climbs the the rope of the the hanging uh uh whatever the cargo and he climbs the net and falls down like or climbs the rope like he actually fell down he lost his grip and slid down the rope and like caught himself on the thing so like that's a significant and serious sort of moment that we're talking about where someone could have been very hurt obviously he wasn't luckily and other things but there is a it's an interesting balance of don't use visual effects or use visual effects to clean something up versus making it possible. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, I think the, in every film he's done some magnificent heroic um, kind of work, but you don't get past the problem that I had. And we discussed this at length on the, uh, on the show when they did him jumping down the water tunnel into the liquid water, mm -hmm hard drive thing <laughs> that happened to have a hole big enough for someone to come into and was the most absurdly designed computer installation in the history of cinema <laughs> that you would have this enormous swirling pool of water on your hard drives which you know the one thing i try and do with my computer is not put water not into get it. It anyway, wet, yeah yeah and that that and then how did you even change these hard drives over you'd have to have a door that would allow someone to come in because if you had to service the robot arm or whatever and and even with all of that, right? Like if you were going to liquid cool things, why do you have to have exposed water at the volume that they did flying past it at the rate that they did? I mean, you know, it's like, it was yeah. so dumb. Well, because well, the set piece. That, yeah, but I admired that Tom could hold his, uh, his, his breath, breath for that long. Yeah. I think I, one of the was, things that makes me think of though is, you know, when we talk about the Mission Impossible franchise and the the sort of the tapestry that's woven cinematically between you know, having these stunts, these Tom Cruise kind of, you know, stunts uh, for, uh, and then the visual effects and 
the sort of set, the action set pieces woven together to, you know, create whatever kind of narrative. It just makes me think that it's what he's doing as a, as an actor, as a um, producer, a filmmaker, um, you know, with his team and with Macquarie directing these last few, it's really like the equivalent of, you could make the argument that's the equivalent of like a bus. He's like a Buster Keaton kind of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, actor, yeah. right? He's really recapturing that kind of uh, physicality in a 20, 20th, 21st century kind of way um, and creating spectacle for the audience in order to do something that, you know, let's face it, like I think it has great benefit for everybody to get butts in seats, to get people to go back to the theater, to get people excited um, about going to see movies again, you know? Um, and so there's yeah, something about there's it, no that, you know, as crazy as it, as it all is and as crazy as like he sometimes does seem to me personally, um, as a humanoid, um, what he's doing, uh, you know, it's hard not to admire it. It's certainly unique in the modern age. Lots of running, lots yeah. and lots of <laughs> yeah. running. The Tom Cruise uh, running. <laughs> well, I think there was that, I think we've probably brought this up before. There was an analysis done of the Mission Impossible films and all Tom Cruise films. And they said the films do better proportionately to the amount of running in the, (laughs) in the films. Yeah. Yeah. And he's always Uh, got that kind of like real intense gait. He hauls ass, man. He's he's, pumping his, with his arms. The best, one of the funniest memes, I mean, that's sort of off subject, but one of the funniest uh, memes about Tom Cruise was I think during the last Mission Impossible, they were saying that not even this one, that he was older or the same age as Wilford Brimley was yeah. in the first Cocoon movie. In and cocoon, then you just yeah. look at the two side by side <laughs> and think like how, yeah. how interesting it is that, you know, in the current moment, uh, you know, an actor who's taking good physical care of their instrument uh, can maintain a certain yeah. kind of youthful look for a long time. As opposed I, to the can Wilford I bring up, Brimley of Cocoon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to see Wilford Brimley as the, as the lead in... <laughs> A Mission Impossible movie. That Dead Reckoning Part 2, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, diabetes. <laughs> uh, the uh, the uh, one thing I do want to bring up that I thought was a good visual thing was um, when the whole nightclub scene, uh, which was very John Wick, re- re- you mm-hmm. know, reminiscent, was that as soon as you go in and you see all the LED walls, like my kid turned to me and he goes, those all look like the entity. You know what I mean? Like they did a good, very good visual um, design to give you that. Like, sure, it's all like tech you'd see at like a kind of a ravey kind of like high end mm-hmm, nightclub. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, you realize as the story goes on. Oh, it is. And they, I, I don't know if you know if you felt this, but the way that they did like the circular, like it wasn't quite a circle, but it was implied of a circle in the middle of an eye, and the way it kind of came out and looked around was very like Sauron esque mm-hmm. the way that's the eye of sauron looked you know kind of looking around frantically in lord of the rings like it had that same vibe like uh i think as yeah, it the a, it's a cool production he, design thing to try to bring yeah. the entity into a physical space yeah, yeah. the the anthropomorphizing of mm-hmm. the entity in the in the graphics i you know the the digital graphics i thought was very well done we um, mentioned it didn't before, seem over I'm the top awe. I'm in awe of graphic designers that can come up with a fake user interface and a fake screen that the audience goes, yeah, I understand what's going on there, but it looks super techie. 
but in fact, it's just gibberish, right? And yeah, like Mark Colleran. in my <laughs> in my career, I have tried doing that a couple of times, and I have hard. succeeded almost none. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just really hard to make something that looks ultra clever, but yet makes sense to the audience. The other mm-hmm. visual, it's, it's a real skill. The other visual sequence that, I mean, I just, I loved it. And it's, I don't really know if you'd call it a visual effect sequence, but it's a very designed, uh, the title sequence with all the different mm-hmm. sort of images animating back and forth. And I think that combined with the way in which they uh, composed the variant of the score, which is, it was so big and bombastic mm-hmm in that opening title sequence. And it's repeated again with that same heavy percussive, very bass heavy uh, thing at the end in the end credits. And I think it really, it accelerates and lifts the energy of the vibe of the movie in a way in the theater. I thought it was really great. And whoever designed that title sequence where you see like flashbacks to all the other Mission Impossible films. It goes aren't flashbacks. Those are, this is the only, no, this is the, it's what's coming. It's the yeah. only movie, Where it's certainly in the action, v- that shows you a synopsis of the film you're about to see. About to see. It's okay. very, you, you don't true, know right? it until you like watch the movie, but it's an, it's a really interesting. Uh, but it's a great take. homage and a nod to the concept 100%. of it being something that's lifted from a television show, an episodic. Yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. I just thought it yeah, was cool. I it's would, a really great design. Yeah. <clears throat> totally. I just always found it interesting that they were like look aheads instead of flashbacks. So uh, I guess like we're getting close to our hour here, but are there yeah. any other sequences, things that really stood out to you? I'm trying to think. I mean, I, I actually really liked the airport sequence. I thought it was really well done uh, and, and was maybe the most successful use of the entity doing something. Right. Like being right, where involved. He's, he's in, moving through and they're looking for him. And he's got what was the he one of them has the she has the key and then he had he has the key. Yeah. It's kind of yeah, the, the cat and yeah, the cat and mouse of where the key goes is a physical aspect, but they used all the screens for the Ving Rames character to put fake 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 faces on him in the surveillance video that was being right, tracked right. by the Shea Wiggum group of government group um and then you have that it's like morales thing scene in raiders you know yeah which basket has marion Mm -hmm. or whatever it's a shell game it's a shell game that's a great it's a it's a really fun sequence and it really gives like a a sense of the the entity's abilities i guess in some well in the bomb and then the bomb Right. Yeah, and then the bomb that that Simon Pegg has to defuse is based on things that it knows about him. It was a, it was a you know when he had to say it with the answer, which is of course gives you that like you can't just say it; you had to state the question and the answer, which goes to sort of the AI logic and other things. You know, it was well, and it's like it social smart, engineering too. It's like drawing yeah. out these things mm-hmm. about one's persona. It's like the idea of yeah. you know uh, you know cookies or whatever or something you mm-hmm. know like that you're yeah. tracked across one site to the next and if you like this you're your friends with this mm-hmm. person you know they yeah. love these shoes or whatever yeah yeah no it was it was it was really well done and of course they do the 
you see the Isai Morales character for the first time there, sort of as you saw him come off the escalator, which they they see him being sort of erased on the screen in real time. Yeah, that was so that was a ghost. cool effect too. The 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 way in which in real time he's being digitally removed and the the yeah. artifacting of it. You know, it looks yeah. just like you know if you're trying to do. Uh, you know, a, a content aware fill, yeah, uh, style thing in After Effects, you know, it, which actually mm-hmm. winds up looking a little better than what they showed in the film. But it, you can see yeah. sometimes some of those same artifacts and stuff. Or what um, Wonder Studios has been doing, if you've, I don't know if you messed around with the, yeah, yeah, the web release, but it's like just playing around with the free, you know, bit. You can do a, you know, shoot a video of somebody walking and then have it, mm-hmm. you know, when you look at the paint out layer. You know, it looks just like that too, where it's doing yeah, that yeah. same thing. It's like a content aware fill kind of mm-hmm. thing that's happening. And then we got a classic uh enhance style moment, zoom mm-hmm. in, enhance, enhance, <laughs> when they go in and they see Isai Morales's, you know, uh reflection in the glass bounced off of another thing, and they zoom all the way in and they're like, This is the only image of him in the entire, you know, of all the surveillance video. He couldn't hide from his reflection, you know. Uh, now, of all the uh, Mission Impossible films uh, that we have seen to date, I had, I don't know that I could actually recall each one individually. I don't know if you could, but is where would you rank this one? I don't know. Probably, probably under the previous two Macquaries. I thought the the first, certainly the first Macquarie, which I think was five or six, because uh, it was JJ did three. Right. John Woo did two. De Palma did one. Uh, four was Brad Bird. I think five and six were Macquarie. And so this yep. is Macquarie and he's doing seven and 7.1 and 7.2 or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Um, I would put it probably above the JJ, but below the first two Macquaries. I thought the first two Macquaries were really good. But I like, uh, what's his name? Sean Harris. And like, he was a great villain. Um, so yeah. I have lots a weird of cool, soft lots of cool for physical the, for the De Palma version, maybe just because yeah. that one happened while I was still at ILM. It's yeah, fun, yeah, but, yeah. But I think probably the I still think the JJ one three is one of yeah. my favorites. I guess the first one ever for me, I just was really sorry. The plot in that kind of crushed me because I didn't think Ethan was going to be the continuing character from the Mission Impossible yeah. sequence. <laughs> so yeah. When um, when the head of the Mission Impossible team, but the channel, come on, I mean, <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing, isn't it? Like even in that first one, flying a helicopter up a tunnel, right? Like at some point, you either buy into these films or you don't. If you buy into, you can fly a helicopter up a tunnel, that you can have a giant data sort of aqua tank thing, like a fish tank for hard drives, and if you can, you know sort of need to climb a mountain so as to jump on top of a train. Um, if you can buy into those things, then there's no doubt in the world that Tom Cruise is one of the world's great movie stars. He's uh, one of the most dedicated um, actors you'll ever find. Talk about committing to a role for crying out loud. And he just genuinely loves cinema. Um, and audiences love him, you know, like because the guy has just got charisma. Like he yeah. just... He, he smiles, his kind of little kind of little head turn looks with the neck kind of clenched, jaw clenching thing. It's just, yeah. I mean, we'd be so much poorer as a cinematic going 
public if he decided <laughs> that he only wanted to make, you know, kind of dumb romantic comedies or something. But, um, yeah, his, his, and also the artists that work on these things mm-hmm. do really high-quality work. Um, so you just have to buy into the um, suspending disbelief, right? Oh, for sure. And uh, if you can do that, great. And if it's a little hard, yeah, then it's a little hard. But they're good films for what they are. Unfortunately, I think in the pantheon of cinema history, they're going to fall into the uh, Matt Wallen Chinese takeout um, category of, you know, there are films that you just think about, argue about. And- <laughs> but but it's like, but I like Chinese takeout yeah. and it's oh, and yeah, I, Mission I love Impossible it. is, it was worth my $10.50 for my ticket. So I don't regret it. No, no, no. It. <laughs> I would recommend the film to somebody. It's a great, um, you know, evening out. And and it's escapist in the best Hollywood sense. It's, you know, give the audience something that they can get a thrill from, that they can be excited by, that they can be on the edge of their seat. Um, yeah, it's totally all of those things. Um, but it's not going to have the weight of Citizen Kane and it probably never aspires to. But, you know, there you go. Hey, uh, on that note, we are obviously, as we've been alluding to, going to be covering the cultural phenomenon that is um, Barbie and Oppenheimer. And uh, and as you would expect that we would. And we, as you've already heard from the earliest um, hints by my friend Jason, who made disparaging remarks um, about Christopher Nolan, going to be getting into a heated debate, no doubt, about the uh, validity of one of the <laughs> greatest filmmakers of our time. Um, but uh, all that's coming up. In the interim period, I just want to flag that uh, I'm going to be at SIDGRAPH, which is happening in Los Angeles uh, in uh, two weeks' time as we're recording this, which is about the, um, whatever that is, the 8th or the 9th of, uh, is that correct? I think I have my dates correct there. It's, um, yeah, it's about 7th to 10th of uh, August. Yeah, I mean, the Saturday the 5th is DigiPro, which I find to be just a really good conference every year. Um, and if I can just do a self-promotion for a second, on the 6th of um, August at 2 p.m., I'm going to be in the Frontiers workshop on building trust and impact in an age of AI, uh, which may not surprise many of you that uh, I'm doing AI. But I'm also doing a um, uh, a talk or a panel session with NVIDIA on the Tuesday at uh, 1 o'clock on the 8th and another one with Autodesk on the 9th at 10 a.m. So if you're going to SIDGRAPH uh, and you could make any of those, that'd be great. But if you don't and you see me walking around, I'd love to say hi. We always really enjoy talking to um, those that are going to be there. Aren't you doing a birds of a feather too, an A? Uh, I'm not organizing that. I'm hopefully attending that, but I'm not organizing the birds of a feather. That's uh, an AI session that's happening on... Oh, I knew you were going to ask me oh. that. Um on the Wednesday night, I think, um, but I have to check that. But uh, that's Sorry. right. <laughs> well, it was you and in, in your other your other podcast, yes, I think, which right? is uh, uh, animated intelligence uh, podcast. So that's that's happening at Secret. But I guess my point I was about to make, and I just um, wanted to finish the thought was it's not just me going. Um, John Montgomery is going to be there as well, and both John and I, as obviously co-founders mm-hmm. of FX Guide and FX PhD, have just love hearing from those of you that have uh, benefited for enjoyed um, doing stuff at FX PhD or uh, reading FX Guide. So if you see us walking around, please stop. Unfortunately, my my co-hosts here, uh, Matt and Jason, won't be in 
uh, Los Angeles this year, I believe. Is that right, Jason? You're not going to make it? I, I, there's always a chance that I make a surprise appearance. But yeah, I'm not coming. Well, that would be great if you could. But uh, yeah, no, we really like connecting with people. And so sometimes people are like, I don't want to you know, interrupt you or whatever, but unless I'm in the middle of an actual panel presentation, please interrupt me. I'd love to say hello. Um, so that's how you can contact me. And of course, uh, as always, I'm Mike Seymour on the various. Are you guys on um, on threads? With, yeah, uh, with I'm Facebook on uh, let's see, I'm on what was Twitter, but it's now becoming X. Yeah. Well, I'm no longer on X or Twitter. I mean, I think my account's still open, but I'm not using it at all. But I'm on Threads. I'm on um, what's the other one? Uh, Mastodon, and um, and uh, people can always find me at at uh, yeah. VCU Arts or at mattwallen.com. And one thing I was going to mention: uh, if you're going to Seagraph and you want to uh, get away for at least part of a day, you can go over to the LA County Museum of Art, LACMA. And uh, my friend uh, that I've worked with for many years, Matthew Barney, has uh, one of his earliest pieces from 1991, currently mm. on display at LACMA. It's a uh, repressia decline, and it uh, has some sculptural elements as well as um, a single channel video piece. And it's pretty cool. It's a it's kind of talk about we were talking about Tom Cruise and like physicality and physical stunts. Um, that's kind of the stock and trade of uh, the art of Matthew Barney. And, and uh, this is one of his earliest works. And it might just be kind of fun if anybody's into looking at art. You can cruise over to LACMA and check that out. Also, the Academy Museum. Is that museum right downtown or over on the West Coast? Which uh, LACMA is kind of it's right near uh, by the La Brea Tar Pits. Okay. And what about you, Jason? Uh, everywhere you can type in the word Jason Diamond. And uh, I would like to to just say that I have liked Isai Morales for a very long time. And if anyone has not seen his earliest film or one of his earliest films called Bad Boys from 1983 with a young Clancy Brown and Sean Penn, you should watch it because it's very good. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, thanks so much for listening, guys. As I said, we'll um, be recording the uh, the Barbie Oppenheimer um, face-off. Uh, that's going to be an interesting episode if, if there was one. But uh, if you want to hear some uh, other things or there are other shows, TV shows or whatever that you'd like us to uh, to get to, I'm pretty sure we're going to do a foundation one because, oh, my God, I'm just loving foundation to death. I think that's brilliant. And if I can just do another plug, um, there's a podcast just coming out on FX Guide with uh, Ed Moore, the DOP on Hijack. And uh, Ed's a good friend of ours. And Ed discusses basically the cinematography of filming that incredible show. If you haven't seen Hijack, it's just finishing up uh, its first, well, I think it's only season because of the nature of the show, but it is just so well done. And uh, it's on the edge of your seat stuff. So total recommendation, watch Hijack, but also... Um, uh, it's fun listening to Ed explain why a lot of shots are on the right-hand side of the plane looking down uh, and how he uh, lit it and sorted it all out. And that's all over on FX Guide. Until next time, see you later. Bye, guys. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at thefx at fxguide.com. Copyright FX Guide, LLC.